A lot of settlers in so-called Canada want to walk the path of reconciliation with the Indigenous peoples who have always been here. What is land back, and is it the right approach? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Pugh. On our very last episode of season one, we're joined by Riley Yesno to discuss the land back movement that seeks to reclaim Indigenous rights and rebalance our relationships with one another in the land. Riley is an Anishinaabe scholar, writer, and commentator from Aabmatung First Nation. She has been a contributor and commentator for some of the largest media outlets in Canada and the world, including the New York Times, BBC World News, The Globe and Mail, and CBC National News. Her main project right now is teaching Indigenous governance and justice at Toronto Metropolitan University, and she's completing her PhD at the University of Toronto, where she studies Indigenous Canadian politics and is a Vanier scholar. You can also listen to more from Riley on the Red Surgeons podcast. I'm recording today from the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation, whose presence here reaches back to time immemorial and who are customary keepers and defenders of the Ottawa River watershed and its tributaries. And I'm coming to you from Coast Salish territory, specifically the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I moved here in 2019 after growing up in the prairies and then traveling abroad for five years. So when it was time to come back to settle in my home country, I couldn't think of a place I wanted to be more than the West Coast. It's one of the most beautiful places in the entire world, and I love it so much. But there are so many broken systems here that continue to marginalize people. I know that one of the most important ways we can begin to repair some of this damage is to return stolen land. As a descendant of settlers, I'm keen to learn more about how to do this because I hear the topic come up in general conversation, but I didn't really understand how it could be done. So I was really excited to have this conversation. That's really beautiful, Kyla. And and I would really agree. There were lots of questions that I had that Riley was really able to answer. I think it's a great conversation. And if you, dear listeners, enjoy this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. I feel like that was a really hard <laughs> pivot. But... <laughs> no, we're keeping it in. We're keeping it in. <laughs> All right, let's get this show started. <laughs> If you'll forgive a huge question, most listeners for our show, they're going to have some familiarity with European settler colonization. But if you could just talk a little bit about the history of colonization and just just set the stage for us in terms of some of the harms that have been caused, and then we'll talk about dispossession specifically. So colonization of the Americas, a lot of people end up associating it, of course, with uh, Christopher Columbus. Um, which is a big uh, misconception, actually. That I mean, he definitely came to this hemisphere, but <laughs> the the Americas um, actually did not. Um, and so, I think most Canadians instead would know that um, the British and the French um, were the main parties uh, of colonization here in Canada. And it's interesting because, like. As I've gotten more and more into Indigenous politics, um, the more that like I see that those early stages of settlement were like more complicated stories than I often like to think of them as, which is where I'd like to be able to be like, yes, came in with that ill intent, domination, bad, bad, bad. But instead, I've I've really uh, learned over the years the way that 
at least the the earliest settlers, like there was a lot of collaboration that took place in many cases. Um, and this is like a, a story that's especially prominent. I've heard many times on the prairies and uh, helped settlers get through, you know, the, the, the harsh winters, um, uh, the hunting, all of these sorts of things they needed to do to be able to survive here started to, you know, in many cases, fall in love and get married. And so it wasn't until it started to happen en masse that um, the stakes were so high uh, between uh, American versus Canadian colonization, I think, um, that we started to get a lot of really rapid, violent sort of processes taking place. And like one of the um, stats that, you know, always startles me is that like, some people estimate that at the er, in the earliest stages of colonization that the indigenous people in the Americas, um, like ninety to ninety five percent of all of them were were wiped out, basically. Um, and so, like, it's just always jarring to me that I'm like, oh, like anybody here is uh, five to ten percent uh, descendant of of you know what we could have been and who we were. And so that gives really for me always a sense of scale of of how of how huge of a process of genocide and displacement that this was. I don't know necessarily where to go from like the early days to like here. I'm trying to think in Canada, of course, treaties were signed and like treaty, uh, treaty politics is like a whole other story of (laughs) colonization that we could have probably a whole episode on. But to say that like for some people, um, and for some scholars, uh, they look at treaties as having been uh, signs of those like early, actually um, reciprocal relationships and, and and positive relationships that I talked about. And then there are other people that come from the background that like uh, we have to recognize so many treaties were rec- uh, negotiated under duress and that they, um, you know, were not maybe translated properly or people were purposely intoxicated in order to get certain signatures out of them and, you know, all of these sorts of things. So there's also a nefarious element to that. The thing about colonization also that I guess to try and bring it more into the present tense is that uh, folks tend to think of it always like as this historical process um, as opposed to an ongoing event. And that is something that especially in like settler colonial uh, societies, like there's obviously no line (laughs) to say like, oh, and this was the moment when colonization ended and we became post-colonial. And so to think about colonization in the present tense, I think, um, well, yes, we under we need to understand like the outright genocide of like 90 to 95% of people, uh, the processes of uh, yeah, negotiations under duress, all of those things are very clear, I think, in people's minds of like what colonization looks like. And we don't think about it so much as present day um, Indigenous people trying to to get injunctions and almost never getting one, but like the RCMP always getting one and, and federal governments and provincial governments always getting one. We don't think of it as necessarily um, funding gaps um, that are longstanding there, but like they absolutely are like continuations of, of colonization and dispossession. Like we, those are like maybe policy-based ones, but then there's also like still outright like forced sterilization of indigenous women. There are class actions in um, the court systems right now for like numerous women who have this happen to them. And so like we see that genocide and dispossession continues to happen, even if the means have evolved in many cases such that we're like, well, you know, it's not smallpox blankets anymore which is what I think a lot of people um, in their mind like think of the most violent and are like anything other than that couldn't possibly be. 
what a low bar. Right? <laughs> <laughs> terrible, terrible. I am um, also like, what's it called? Cultural genocide. That one gets me. I'm like, oh, are we doing hierarchies of genocide now? There's, <laughs> there's, there's cultural genocide and then real genocide somewhere else, you know? Oh, anyways, tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a, it's a really good point. And like in a lot of, like at least the narratives that I was told in school growing up, colonization was really treated as like something that was in the past and like solved it. And it's only been sort of through, I think a lot of people are going through this right now as settlers, like really starting to realize how these processes are really ongoing and pretty fundamental to the way that Canada works as a country. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really interested to hear your perspectives um, and expertise on dispossession and and land theft. But but first, maybe we can talk a little bit about those treaty situations. Some Indigenous peoples have signed treaties, um, others didn't. Um, and maybe can you talk a little bit about how in both of those situations, alienation from the land has happened? First, I guess, looking at uh, treaty partnerships. Um, so, I mean, I think one thing that um, is, is very clear to me uh, is that no matter what, um, whether you think that treaties were a sign of good relations or not, is that settlers have a fundamentally different vision of what treaties are meant to be than Indigenous people do. Um, in every case, I have heard Indigenous people say that treaties are supposed to be basically agreements for living, um, how to live well with one another. And like there are core principles and then like some of the biggest actionable items that like, you know, talk about that, but that ultimately, yeah, it's, it's how to be in good relations. Whereas settlers, I think, see it in a very settler way, which is um, like, you know, as like, like a capitalist negotiation of who can get the most out for either party. It's not about, um, yeah, making standards for a relationship. It's about like, um, material gain and like having things codified so that they can uh, solidify their material gain. And so that is, I think, where this, this misconception, um, or this, this divide between folks is understanding naturally led to a place where settlers went in with one expectation, indigenous people went in with another. And over the years, we saw like this immovability on the part of settlers um, to recognize that, yes, even if you maybe follow the letter of a treaty, that you can still be um, violating like the spirit of living well with one another. Another thing is like, we'll hear seeded, like treaties are seeded land. And, you know, I, I don't know any Indigenous person or any Indigenation who would have ever been like, yeah, I'm giving up my land. But this is often what treaties are interpreted as being. I'm giving up my land and resources. Whereas um, really it, it is, again, just about like how uh, we could share this place. And so there's that um, element of treaties where I think it was supposed to set up expectations such that they weren't dispossessed from these lands. But that that was never, in many cases, the intent. And so, like, there's a lot of swindling that goes on in there and, and violation, you know, just even when you did have, like, the letters of the law that, like, it's not always upheld, certainly. Um, and then there is the case of, of, of non-treaty lands or non-ceded lands, some would call it, but I think that one's worse. Um, is, uh, and, like, you'll think of places like BC, for example, um, who doesn't have numbered treaties the way, you know, the whole prairies up into like Quebec um, does. And what's happening now, especially though, is because of that is like 
Indigenous people there are encouraged again and again to go through land claims process. So just because they didn't sign treaties doesn't mean that they didn't face the marginalization that Indigenous people in those other parts of the country did. It just meant that they um, weren't guaranteed and subjugated through a treaty in exactly the same way. And so um, now, though, they've put in this place where still, of course, nations that don't have treaties are, have, you know, in many cases, intergenerational poverty. They don't have um, the same standards of living as Canadians are, general Canadians are, are guaranteed. And so now uh, the government's saying like, oh, let's go through these land claim process where you basically, it's, it's a form of a modern treaty where once again, you're talking about parceling up your lands, the rights to those lands, all of those types of things. And we are doing it still on like this very uneven ground where um, there is a lot at stake for Indigenous people economically uh, as like just trying to catch up to everybody else. And then the Canadian government, who, of course, like has has the biggest uh, person in the land and all of this power. And so we're seeing in the modern day also a continuation of those early treaty negotiations that ultimately, yes, uh, uh, serve to dispossess in, in many, many cases, most cases, and uh, aren't made with uh, equal power relationships. So, yeah, there is a, a lot uh, to be dug into there. Yeah, definitely. I feel like we could talk for, for so many hours about this. You're one of the authors on the Yellowhead Institute's red paper on land back. Um, I thought it was a really helpful report for sort of explaining uh, what the report calls the infrastructure of land theft. And so I'm wondering if you can can talk about some of those key tools and how how dispossession has worked in practice. Like what are the tools that the Canadian government and industry and provincial governments use to dispossess Indigenous peoples of their land? And how, how has that sort of worked to deny Indigenous jurisdiction? Maybe maybe one thing we could talk about just to start with, can you, can you talk about like crown lands, <laughs> what those are and how much of Canada is crown land? Crown land is, is basically um, any land in Canada that is not privately owned or um, reserve land. And so you might think that like that's just like provincial parks and like stuff like that. Um, but when you like scale out, and I think people forget, especially when we live in like the, these tight urban centers, how massive Canada is, and you'll realize that crown land is actually like 90% of, of Canada at that I think it's 11% is privately owned. It's, it's been a long time call of Indigenous peoples as well to say like, we can talk about returning land. And uh, we should be protecting these lands as opposed to like, you know, uh, uh, the crown and conservationists and like all of these things. And it doesn't mean any sort of change in the lives of Canadians really on, on a day to day. But it's still um, something that hasn't happened because I think Canada in many cases also likes to keep crown land to sell it to companies for, for resource extraction if possible, to find ways to, to capitalize off of those lands that they own own. People can't see. I did air quotes. <laughs> and, and so Crown Land is like Canada's monopoly on um, territory and resources outside of, yeah, individual ownership. Yeah. And that includes like First Nations reserve land. Even the very small portions that are reserve land are not owned by First Nations. That was something that I was surprised to learn. Yeah, this is an Indian Act um, thing that I'm like, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, out of the realm of expertise about. 
Um, but yeah, like, so I think reserves make up like point something percent uh, of all land in Canada. And what I think is really funny, um, and, and in, in a horrible way is that, uh, indigenous people, um, they're only like formal means of getting, um, increased territory from that like point percent is like things like an addition to reserve process, which has almost like never been which so like you'd think, oh, Canada has a process for like expanding territory and like doing all these things like how awesome and uh, or how useful at least. And in fact, actually, like almost no addition to reserve processes have like ever taken place in especially an effective or um, like time effective or cost effective way. Um, And so it ends up being um, this tool that keeps Indigenous people stuck in the courts for years and years and years, trying to get like, you know, a couple square kilometers added into these places when Canada once again has like that 90% (laughs) of of, uh, Canadian land available to them. And so yeah, there's, uh, that's a a good reminder too about like how how messed reserves are. (laughs) Yeah, and like the I mean, one of the things that I've been really surprised by as maybe it's just like a shift in my thinking, but um, the extent to which these like 90 percent like crown lands are really about resource extraction. So can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indigenous people continue to be this like major thorn in uh, Canada's side when it comes to resource extraction, because like part of part of the reason is that. Indigenous people in the treaties like had these things where it's like, oh, you need our consent if it's going to be on our territories uh, to do any sort of extraction. And there has to be some benefit sharing if we end up doing that process. There's also like now international tools like uh, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which say that like Indigenous people have an inherent right to free prior and informed consent. And so Canadian government I think likes to keep my theory is that, of course, they're trying to keep this land because the second it would come into indigenous people's possession, they would be even uh, less likely to be able to um, bypass their consent um, in the ways that they do now through that resource extraction. So like I'm trying to think of like maybe one example that would be uh, useful for this. Um, And so like I'm from northern Ontario. And right now there's like this, it's not extraction necessarily, but um, a resource related project where the Ontario government and the federal government basically want to dump all of Canada's like nuclear waste in Northern Ontario. They want to bury it underground. And uh, the way that like, so this is a way I think just to illustrate what, uh, how the Canadian government gets around like these consent uh, processes, even though they're in place in like things like treaty and UNDRIP which is where, uh, you know, they go and they say, uh, we've consulted um, with the towns of, of Ignace, which and Kenora, these small little towns in northern Ontario, and that there's Indigenous people there, basically. Um, and so like that is a sufficient uh, and we like paid them lots of money. We got them lots of food, like all of these things, like really buttering people up um, and like that that is um, a sufficient form of consent. And so uh, those lands that they want to do this on are crown lands. And so, yeah, this is like a bit of a tangent, but it's been on my mind lately. And it's like, to me, a very clear illustration of the way that there are processes in place um, so that you shouldn't be able to just like willy nilly extract from and abuse crown lands. But there are so many like secret tools 
and not so secret in Canada's arsenal that stops them from having to actually engage with that in a meaningful way. Correct me if I'm wrong in this, but also in a lot of cases, um, like the consultations that happen don't go through like traditional leaders. It's through like the ban council system that was set up by the Canadian government. Yeah. Well, people will remember BC, like the Wet'suwet'en pipeline, I know, was like a huge media piece. And like part of the reason that there was like uh, the piece of controversy around that was like that the traditional hereditary leadership, who actually are supposed to be, you know, the oversights for, for most of the territory, were the ones who said like, absolutely not. You did not consent with, you did not consult with us, no environmental assessment, et cetera, et cetera. But the Wet'suwet'en Indian Act banned uh, council which is like in the territory um, and some percentage of the nation lives in there. They were the ones that Canada consulted with and went to and, you know, um, basically uh, had agreed to this. And so um, when the Wet'suwet'en government, yeah, the hereditary government, traditional leadership said no, they were like, well, leadership said yes. And it's the leadership that we see as, as, you know, valid and sufficient in all of these things. So yeah, you're totally right. Maybe we could talk about consent a little bit more. You had mentioned UNDRIP um, and free prior and conformed, informed consent. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that sort of means in practice um, and also if there are other sort of indigenous conceptions of consent and what that would sort of entail. FPIC, it's often called, uh, free prior informed consent. Um, and so basically, yeah, it, it's supposed to be um, a way to set the parameters for set some parameters for what consent has to look like so that uh, the Canadian government or, you know, industry, whoever doesn't uh, just go and like hold a town hall and say that that's consent, that there has to be like, um, you know, you can't be bribing people. That would not be free consent. That would be, um, you can't like already have the plans and have bought the pipeline. That is not prior. Um, so like, there's like all of these ways that they're supposed to, yeah, make consent a more robust term, um, as opposed to like at something as like changeable as it can often be turned into. And so, yeah, there's a couple ways uh, that that has happened over the years uh, or that that has been tried to be like upheld over the years. And UNDRIP is like a, a big one in people's minds, of course. Canada first uh, denied UNDRIP, um, one of only four countries to do so in 2007, along with the US and Australia and New Zealand. And I think we can kind of see what is similar about <laughs> all of those, <laughs> all of those countries. And so, yeah, they said they voted no in 2007. And then in uh, 2010, they had said, okay, maybe we'll think about it. Romeo Saganash, who was an NDP MP, really championed getting it approved at the federal level. Um, and so in, in recent years, that's happened. And right now, I think actually um, they have like two more months or something to create like an action plan for it um, so it can uh, actually start to be implemented. The other thing about Canada, of course, though, um, with federalism is that we have to have the provinces basically adopt UNDRIP as well in order for it to like kind of cover all areas of jurisdiction. BC is the only one that has done that. And yet BC is still, you know, the province where that whole Wet'suwet'en um, violation took place. And so we see that even with these tools like UNDRIP, um, that the settler colonial like governments still find ways to either just outright violate it or not. And because there's there's very little oversight, um, really, in terms of making sure that that consent process like is is living up to everyone's standards. Consent in terms of indigenous conceptions of it. 
the one thing I've been, I, I read this recently, and so I've been thinking about it a lot, and I will find her name right now, but it's a, an Indigenous uh, author who um, basically also just says that consent in a settler, in, in any colonial society, is um, impossible. And that the very foundations of colonialism go so against consent that it's impossible to try and forge consent on top of it. That ultimately, like we live in a system that prizes and rewards violence, winning, even by force, all of these sorts of things that are so antithetical to what, you know, we I think should understand consent is as like, you know, this process of of, um, engagement and reciprocity and love and care. And so, uh, yeah, I'm really like grappling with this idea of like, is consent even possible as we live under these structures and systems? And, uh, you know, many Indigenous feminists would say no. Yeah, that was one thing that um, I have been been surprised by, but found really compelling in um, some of the reading that I'm doing is how gender is really connected into these these conversations about dispossession and extraction. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, it's one of the things, and I know we're going to get into to land back, but one of the things like I love about land back being that like it's not necessarily just about territory and property. Like it's about the way that our understandings of how to be people are tied inextricably to the land. And so that includes like gender relations. One of the things people like definitely always forget, for example, first is that the gender binary um, was like one of the first impositions on the onset of colonization. And that like queerness was one of the first things that are attacked. Like if you hear indigenous people talking about their experiences in residential schools, for example, like you'll hear them talk about like being separated from their siblings based on gender, having their hair cut certain ways, like being forced to wear certain outfits. And like that is all imposition of gender norms and roles. There's like documents talking about the ways that at the very early onset of colonization, colonizers saw Indigenous women who were, you know, in many cases in leadership positions, who um, took a a completely different role in communities than, um, you know, Western Euro uh, uh, femme (laughs) people were were meant to. Um, And they found it so horrifying that they could not um, take up this role of, uh, or that they were not taking up this role of domesticity, that it like became the basis for uh, not only all of the like sexist legislation that um, took place, but like just um, ideologically like forging this image of indigenous women as like heathens and like needing to be tamed and like all of these sorts of things, um, which of course, like you can't separate from like now the crises of murder to missing indigenous women and girls. And so, yeah, attacking gender and our conceptions of gender and gender roles, I think, is like very much the bedrock of uh, the colonial project. Simple but very difficult question. (laughs) What does land back mean? Any action that is meant to return and restore the jurisdiction, authority and resources to Indigenous people. I'm thinking nowadays that I should be adding like culture, worldview, something like that in there as well as in addition to like material sort of things like land and jurisdiction. But um, yeah, it. I, what I love about Land Back um, is that uh, it is like so it's it's pretty hard to define in a way because um, like, you know, considering social movements, indigenous social movements from years prior, like say, I don't know more. It was very clear 
who started it, they had like a point list of everything they wanted to accomplish. It was like in many ways, very centralized. Land back is kind of more of a slogan than anything uh, that's supposed to encapsulate any sort of action that accomplishes like those things that I mentioned. It's a bit amorphous. Definitely nobody leads it that gets to say this is land back and that isn't land back. You know, there's no like land back headquarters. It's um, something <laughs> something that just kind of um, like if if it speaks to indigenous people's um, resistances it's there for people to use. And so, yeah, it's in recent years, it's only been around since about 2018-ish um, in those exact terms. Of course, Indigenous resistance to dispossession is, it has been, you know, here for, for as long as Canada's been here. But uh, land back itself is, I think, our most current language of a movement that we're, that we're living through when it comes to Indigenous resurgence. I wonder, there, there are a couple of different themes that I was able to pull out, and I, I may have missed a lot of them. So <laughs> if there are others, please let me know. But maybe we'll, we'll talk about some of these. Uh, so one of the first themes that I had sort of seen come up a lot is land back as being related to sort of authority to decide what happens and that sort of notion of consent that you were talking about before. So can, can you maybe talk about like what what self-determination, what like authority to decide what happens within the territory? What does that, what, what would that look like in your sort of ideal or what are people talking about it looking like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. I, cause like, you're right. Um, it's not just about like now indigenous people take all the land and, and like we do whatever we want with it and blah, 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 blah. This is like one of the number one, uh, like fears I, I get is that like, Settlers seem to think that if uh, when we talk about land back, but what we're actually proposing is like, you know, uno reverse on colonization and like we just dispossess them in the way that they dispossessed us, <laughs> um, which has like never been the vision of uh, indigenous people. Like we have, you know, our very earliest treaties talk about living in peace and friendship and all of those things. Instead, what it would be, I think, is including those territories where other people are living is not a, a removal, but rather um, trying to, to remake relationships um, to power and structure and authority such that Indigenous people get to lead those decisions. Self-determination, once again, is, is not about replicating Canada in like our own territories, but it's instead about like a complete transformation of what governance looks like, about what justice looks like, about how we enforce these things. And so it's a much more fulsome project than just like returning a deed and, um, you know, that being that being self-determination. Yeah. And I mean, that seems to me to be like such a, an opportunity to reframe our society in a way that's more just not only for indigenous peoples, which obviously should be the goal, but but also just to reorient ourselves towards like well-being societies that are anti-capitalists, you know. But um, I mean, there are some versions of land back that talk about like physical redistribution, and you know, I, I saw one proposition of like paying an annual lease on all lands that are indigenous held, um, if. So I wonder if you could talk about some conceptions of, of what that might look like. Not necessarily the least thing, but like <laughs> physical reclamation. Yeah, yeah. So there are totally a, a bunch of different ways of like what um, of what land back could look like. Like from, you know, community gardens that like feed Indigenous communities on their own terms such that they're not reliant on like 
the Northern store and like subsidized uh, Canadian uh, corporations uh, bringing in like terrible food. <laughs> and so, or, or return it, learning how to like hunt and fish and reclaim those practices so that they're um, what's it called, have more agency in how they are able to feed themselves. Like that's one whole thing. Another thing about like language reclamation is like, could also be considered land back, but in terms of like um, territory and materiality, one of the ones that always strikes people because it offers such a big, window for non-Indigenous people to be a part of it are things like paying rent sort of setups, they're called, which often go into land trusts, actually, is what they are. So instead of it being like, oh, um, you know, this is going uh, to, say, a band council, which sometimes it might be, but like for the most part, it goes into trusts so that um, future generations of Indigenous people can continue to live and work and and use those lands in ways that benefit them and that they see fit. Um, And so they often are made in such a setup that like a lot of churches take part of it, nonprofits and private individuals who um, either in a one-time way or every month, um, you know, give some sort of means to um, those trusts uh, to keep it going and building. And so like, that is like one way so that indigenous people have the means to conduct like, you know, whatever they want to do and whatever they need to do on their lands. And don't even have to think about things like, you know, selling it um, is where a lot of people are, are end up finding themselves in a position of at some point. But then there's also like just giving uh, people more and more people giving like deeds back to indigenous people in their territories um, once they pass or like leaving it in a will or, you know, something like that instead of like, you know, how many people, uh, and I, I find this, I found this horrifying when at U of T that it still happens is that like alumni who just like give their property to, um, U of T once they pass such that U of T is like the biggest landowner in the province next to the province. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's wild. (laughs) It's so wild. And I'm like, and it's just all these people who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm very comfortable giving all of my property to U of T. And I'm like, what? And so anyways, didn't know that it happened already, but instead of giving it to U of T or the like, um, people give it to indigenous people. And so, it's not the whole scale transformation necessarily in like those one things, but like they're all pieces that work towards that goal of like a transformed future and collective self-determination for indigenous people. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting idea that like, even before we get the sort of overarching transformation that is needed, uh, people in their sort of individual lives can practice land back in, in ways like giving their land. Are there any other ways you can, you can think of that an ally could support land back? Yeah. So like one of the things I really love, um, there's this one in the States called uh, the Segorite, uh Land Trust, which has like um, g- become like a somewhat uh, like micro famous as being like a great example of what land back is. And so it is, a, it's a land trust as well that people pay into, but they also have like, they know that there are people who like want to help this cause, but don't necessarily have the financial means um, to be able to like contribute in substantial ways or on a, a regular basis. And so like, they'll also do things like come out and and help us weed the garden, um, come out and take some on some admin tasks for us. Um, and so like, there's ways that people are able to volunteer, um, like their time and labor as a means of giving back as well, as opposed to just strictly um, in financial or material ways. What about compensation? Uh, there's some idea as well about reparations as a way to make things right. Maybe maybe you can can start by talking about like the wealth that we continue to garner from stolen land. 
talk about why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Reparations. Oh, man. I was talking about, I, I also teach at TMU um, these days, and I teach Indigenous justice and governance. And so my students and I were talking about uh, reparations because they're like, we need that. And I was like, but is that the end goal? Let's think. <laughs> is that liberation? Because I think they're often conflated to be. This is something that uh, I've been thinking about a lot as we have major class actions in like the last few year and settlement agreements that have gone back that are like the biggest in Canadian history, right? Where first it was um, for the TRC, Indian Residential School uh, Settlement, which at the time was the largest in Canadian history at like $1.9 billion or something like that. And now just the other day, they finalized uh, the child welfare class action settlement at like $23 billion. Um, and so like with each one, it gets like more, it recognizes more and more how just like grievous the atrocities are and like the money just is trying to keep up with, I think that like growing recognition that if we were to, I wonder like if we were to have a TRC today, like I think that that package would end up looking very, very different. The thing that I find really you know, effed up about the way that Canada undertakes like compensation processes is that like, one, like it, it just is like, the whole process of it in itself is like, I think, very non conducive to healing in any way. So like, there's like this real urge on the part of the courts to get you to quantify the harm that has happened to you. And so we saw this happening a lot with, say, like the TRC, where it was like, yeah, you would get a base amount no matter what for every year that you had been there. But then if you wanted additional, if you, what's it called, were, were seeking additional redress, it was like, well, how many times have you were you assaulted that you can remember? How many times were you assaulted in this way? And then there were certain like dollar amounts that correspond to all of that. Um, and so like, the process of it is just in no way like healing to me at all. No, that's quite ghoulish. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, and that's what we continue to do. Like they're doing a class action, like suit right now on water um, for all of the communities that haven't had clean drinking water for forever. And it's like, yeah, um, how, how many mental disorders have you had? Like as a part of this, how many like physical, do you have anxiety? Like, and they're trying to like find ways to quantify with money that I don't think can ever be. There's also uh, the part about it that I, I think is like super gross is that like Canada, of course, continues to like do the harm. They continue to colonize. And so like, uh, there's like a lot of talk about say, again, residential schools and the way that um, in Northern Ontario, Northern Manitoba and uh, Saskatchewan, like there's no high schools on reserves. And so children at 13 years old are forced to like move into urban centers, live in homes with white people. Um, and then like in, mo in most cases go to, to just to get an education. And many of them often die in, on the process of like being uh, re forcibly relocated to get an education. How is that not just a mirrored experience of, of residential schools um, just in like modern days, right? And so like the thing that's like, I think a problem to me about redistribution here and compensation is that unless Canada is willing to actually like transform um, the, the means of their ongoing colonization, they're just going to keep continuing to create 
like the conditions for which they need to redress. <laughs> so like, we're just, you know, I just don't see an end on this hamster wheel of like, um, violation and then down the road line, uh, a horrible process of trying to get some money and then bigger amounts of money. Sure. But like, you know, it's nothing that actually gets at the heart of why these continue to take place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so is there like within the land back movement, is there sort of a sense that that is the wrong focus and that is why land back is sort of like the calling sign? Yes. And no, like, I think that uh, the idea that, again, compensation is liberation, is the freedom that we're looking for, is not a very widely held view. That for most of this, it's, yeah, it's not about, once again, just the material means. It's about that larger transformative process. But that also people recognize that, like, at least in, you know, our current structures, compensation is both necessary and like, like to be able to continue to, to live <laughs> in like, uh, this global world. Um, but then also, um, it's, it's, it's right in many ways. And you mentioned off the top that, uh, like, of course, Canada is only wealthy as wealthy as it is. It's only as rich as it is because of the way it dispossessed and extracted from and continues to from indigenous territories. And so any income that Canada has, like, is indigenous peoples in, in most ways. And so uh, there's like also, I think, when we're looking at correcting the damage that's trying to take place, trying in any ways uh, to mitigate the ongoing harm of those extractive processes, that costs a lot of money. And so like, it's also, I think, important to see the way that indigenous people in those uh, processes put them into like healing funds most of the time often as well and it's not just about individual compensation but about trying to use every tool in the toolbox including sometimes money as a way um, to, to meet those larger goals if we're looking forward to like let's say there's a future society that really rebalances these relations in a a transformative and productive way <laughs> Um, and a healing way. What would that, how do you think um, society would change um, and what would it look like? Oh, that's pretty good. For, it reminds me of this um, conference I went to and I was talking about liberation and I was like, we need it basically was the, the thesis. <laughs> and um, this like woman got up and she started talking to me, this non-Indigenous woman. And she was like, do you think that even if we were in a place where we had all the tools for liberation, that we would even be able to accept it, that we would even be able to do whatever. She's like, I think people are so dependent on um, like negativity and they only know violence and they only know all of these things that like, even if we could, that like we might be the things that get in the way. And I thought it was like a very profound question in a way um, because like, I agree that one of the most sinister things that colonialism does is not just its impacts on indigenous people, but on non-Indigenous people in that, like, when, you know, colonizers, like, have made it such that when I say, like, oh, yeah, land back, the first thing that comes to people's mind is fear, is that all they know is domination. That, I think, is a very real product of colonialism stifling our sense of what is possible amongst all people. So, like, I get that. But then I, what I said to her, um, and what I think I ultimately believe about it, is that, like, liberation, uh, we, first of all, we have all the tools already, like, in we have the knowledge, we have um, people willing to pursue it and fight for it. It's just like a matter of will on a, a large enough scale, that critical mass. And then also, I think if we actually ever were 
to reach liberation, we would know we were there and we would be able to accept it because we build it like brick by brick by brick. It's like a place to be. And so I think that what that speaks to me in terms of what uh, that future could look like is one where it's intentional. Everybody has has played and continues to play a part in building it and upholding it, which means like a transition from like this individualist mindset that we are all rewarded for here, um, where it's like you care about yourself and maybe like your nuclear family and friends into like a truly communal way of living with one another and with the land. And like, this is the thing about land back too that I think in non-Indigenous people like why they should love it in addition, even if it's not like for just like the moral ethical standard of indigenous reparation, but is that like this system doesn't work for anybody. Like we are, we, the climate crisis is killing us. Capitalism is killing us. And land back offers a, a very real way of how to do um, all of that differently. And it's one that indigenous people, despite all these years of colonization, very generously, I think like, continue to have always welcomed other people into and to like want to spread that around. So like rather than, yeah, being like this thing about taking, it's about like, I see it as very hopeful. I see it as very uh, loving for like not only other Indigenous kin, but other non-Indigenous people and generations to come. Well, that was a really lovely answer. (laughs) Thank you. I have one last question. I think Kristen knows what's coming. (laughs) Riley, if I were to lend you my magic wand, what would you like, what would you, what would you magic, what would you magic into existence like today? Like if you could imagine just your perfect scenario, what, what would you, what would you like to see? The first thing that came to my mind is to kind of put like, a big pause on on most things, a moratorium on average life. <laughs> um, because I think that um, one of the things that I find most draining right now that stop that and as I see is most inhibiting progress is that um, people just like don't have any time and space because of how much like we're always kept on the brink of survival. So many people could be doing so much and healing themselves, healing, helping others, doing all of this work if we weren't um, so busy just trying to like get through the day to day. And so like in, in lieu of saying like, yeah, all of the land has been returned and back and blah, blah, blah. I think that's something that like, I like this increased space for just like healing, joy, thinking, things that are just really not valued um, under our current systems and structures, I think could be really transformative. And like, also necessary for the land back project, because as Erica Violet Lee once told me on a panel, and I was like, wow, that's really true, is that she said, even if we all got the land back tomorrow, that doesn't undo the damage that colonialism did to all of us individually. She's like, we have, we've got mad patriarchy to unlearn, uh, like wild internalized colonialism. We have to learn how to be in solidarity with the other people that are also here by a product of colonization. And like, that is something that just, again, increased territory does not offer us. It's work that like, we always have to be doing, even without land, and that we are doing without land. And so I think if we had that pause from your magic wand, um, we would be able to do that a little bit more intentionally, so that when we had the land back, we could we could take it back with with a in a real good way. (laughs) 
Riley, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about this movement. Kristen and I have been really excited about it for ages and we were so pleased to find you to speak with us about it and to like unpack it a little bit. Also, um, just an excuse to read the red paper. I would recommend it for people. It's only 68 pages. You can skim a lot of it. There's like pages that are just pictures. So, you know, we're going to link to that. People can check it out. And if anyone wants to learn more, we'll link to a few other sources as well. But ultimately, if everyone could just think a little bit more about the world around them and why it is the way it is, we would be really appreciative. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>